We are smack dab in the middle of a series called My Story. We're going to read in a moment from Acts chapter 7, if you brought your Bible, sort of pick up where we left off last time. My Story is a series of messages based on, you guessed it, my story and your story and, of course, God's story and how they are interwoven together, how my story becomes significant even when I consider it to be meaningless, insignificant, smaller than most, it still becomes eternally significant because it is connected to God's overall eternal story. Now, one of the things that you've noticed, I'm sure, as I shared my story several weeks ago, Adam shared his today, others have shared theirs previous Sundays, is transformation, the idea of transformation from one thing to another, from, from one way of living, one worldview, to something brand new. The story of Jesus Christ is a story of transformation. My story, personally, was one of transformation from personal strength and determination to brokenness, embarrassment, weakness, and then back to strength, but this time strength that's found in faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, your story is personal and unique to you. In fact, that's what we learned last time. Your story is very unique and personal to you. I'm waiting for it to come up on the screen. Bam, there it is. Your story matters because it's unique and personal to you. Your story does not have to look like my story, and my story doesn't have to look like your story. I've had this conversation with many people over the years who wonder and question whether or not their story should look somehow different from the way it appears. You see, not everybody's story is a story of sincere, heartfelt devotion to God. My story is not a particularly emotional story. I'm not a particularly emotional person. Yours might be a story of sheer determination, of duty before God, of responsibility that you feel because of God's grace demonstrated to you. Don't envy someone else's story. This is very important, you see. Because God will use whatever speaks loudest to you to write your story, and he'll use whatever speaks loudest to me to write mine. Now, last time we were introduced to a young man named Saul. Few stories in the Bible are as dramatic as Saul's. Saul's transformation was one from the church's most prolific enemy, a destroyer and enemy of the church, to the church's most prolific apostle and missionary. Saul turned the first century Gentile world upside down. We're introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. The stoning of Stephen is the first recorded uh, martyrdom of Christianity in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was a spokesperson for Jesus Christ. He stood in the temple on a regular basis in the synagogue and he spoke Jesus as Messiah, not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. And this frustrated the governing body called the Sanhedrin. The story of Paul or Saul begins in Acts chapter 7, but actually it continues throughout the remainder of your New Testament. This is quite a story, and I want to just hit a few highlights of it today. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, when they heard Stephen's sermon, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. This is the same governing body. The Sanhedrin were the religious politicians in Jerusalem that were responsible for the execution of Jesus. Now they've rejected Christ as their Messiah, executed him. Now they reject him again by executing his followers. 
Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, the Bible says, was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 tell us that if you are a follower of Christ, your very body is the dwelling place of God's Spirit. My body is the temple of the Spirit of God. Now, scholars disagree as to the extent of this filling and when it happens. But one thing is certain. If you follow Jesus, God is in you and he desires to write your story. Verse 56, look, Stephen said, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man is the most common uh, descriptive term used for Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels, the four biographies. Uh, Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That denotes that Jesus and the Father are co-equal. They're co-eternal. They're co-existent. This was the claim that got Jesus executed in the first place because Jesus was not only a representative of God the Father, Jesus claimed to be God himself. Keep reading, verse 57. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. Meanwhile... The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Every time I read the word meanwhile in the Bible, I go back to my childhood days and the Hall of Justice. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Remember that? Batman, Superman, Aquaman. Okay, maybe not. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was an up-and-comer. He was a theologue. Saul had been trained by the most prominent Jewish Pharisee, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the top of the heap. This would be like a congressman in the U.S. Congress being taken under the wing of a former president. That's how significant this Gamaliel-Saul relationship was. Both Gamaliel and Saul were experts in the Old Testament law. They both were good Pharisees. They both believed sincerely that Christianity was a threat to Jewish tradition and Jewish law. So they lay their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It was open season on followers of Jesus Christ. This great persecution, this scattering of the church is known as the great diaspora, the great scattering of the church. Uh, Peter introduces or addresses his first epistle in the latter part of your New Testament to the Christians scattered because of the persecution, addressed to these followers of Jesus Christ. We next see Saul a couple of pages over in Acts chapter 9. The political movement that had executed Jesus was now expanding, and they were trying to wipe out his followers as well. What I want you to see is that first century persecution of Christ followers began with this man, Saul. It ramped up considerably under the Roman emperor, Nero. You ever heard of Nero? In AD 64, Rome, the city of Rome, caught on fire, and it burned for seven days. You can imagine they didn't have very good firefighting tools back in those days, 
So the city burned for seven days, and get this, three quarters of the city of Rome burned to the ground. Now the citizens in Rome, they blamed Nero for starting the fire for his own amusement. And that is very believable because history tells us that Nero was a very warped and perverted emperor. In order to deflect some of that blame, Nero pointed at the Christ followers and blamed them. He rounded up as many as possible, he tortured them, he starved them, he incarcerated them, he beat them into confessing to a crime that they did not commit. Some of them even pointed the finger at others, and the persecution of Christians was on. Thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of followers of Jesus Christ were executed, either in the Roman Colosseum or in those damp, dark, dingy, filthy dungeons of Roman prison. For nearly 300 years, Christ's followers were executed under Roman reign. It wasn't until Constantine came along in A.D. 313 that the persecution was lifted. But Saul began it all, and it begins in chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there it is again. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So now Saul is armed with authority to take the persecution outside Jerusalem to the surrounding communities. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I reminded you this last time. Saul started out persecuting an it. He started out persecuting a a movement, but now it's become personal to Saul. Who are you, Lord? Verse 5, Saul asked. Well, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Church closely associated with faith in Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, is the embrace of his mission. That is the fruit of self-denial and cross-bearing. Remember Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, he said, if you want to be my follower, you got to take up your cross. You got to deny yourself. Then you can follow me. According to Luke in the book of Acts, story after story after story is one of faith in Christ followed by a response. The embrace not only of Jesus, but the embrace of his mission as well. Here's the main idea today. I want to make sure you get this. You will never know what God can do with your story until you allow him to write it. You will never know what God can do with your story, as insignificant as it may seem, until you allow him to write it. The transformation of this man, of Saul, is one of the most dramatic, undeniable, and historic of all time. You see, when Saul met Jesus... And it became personal, everything changed. In fact, Saul's life changed so dramatically that the apostles wouldn't have anything to do with him because they didn't believe him. The first century followers of Jesus avoided him because they didn't trust him. Saul met Jesus one day and everything changed for him the next. He became, on one day, the most vicious, vile, hateful, violent persecutor of the church, and overnight became the most prolific mouthpiece, missionary, and apostle the first century church had ever seen. The only one who would befriend Saul was a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas's name means encouragement. Barnabas was an encourager. He was the only follower of Jesus in the first century to extend 
a hand, an open hand to Saul. They teamed up. They became a wildly successful missionary team. Saul decided to change his name in Acts chapter 13. In fact, we'll go there next. Saul was both a Jew, but he also had Roman citizenship. So his Jewish name, Saul, he dropped it, and he chose instead his Latin or Roman name, Paul. Paul used Antioch as his home base. Uh, in fact, for a period of about 10 years, Paul and, or Saul, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled southern Europe and Asia Minor, setting up churches all around. I've got a map. I'll throw it on the screen. Uh, I realize it's kind of hard to see, but the different colors represent the different journeys of Paul, the apostle, and Barnabas, and then eventually Silas. There was a first journey, and a second journey, and a third journey. What you're looking at there is the tip of southern Italy in the top left corner of the screen. That's the little boot of Italy. Okay, then beside that, in the middle of the screen, that's Greece. And then we're surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, going through what we would call Turkey, and then further south to uh, Syria. And throughout this area, Paul set up one church after another, a church in Corinth, a church in Ephesus, a church in Colossae, a church in Thessalonica. In fact, the bulk of the New Testament letters in your Bible are letters written to the churches that Paul set up on these missionary journeys. Barnabas was his companion, his close companion, but they also took with him several others. John Mark, who is the author of Mark's Gospel, Peter is most likely the author of Mark's gospel. Peter dictated it, but John Mark wrote it down. Uh, Paul and Barnabas also took Luke, who is the author of Luke's gospel, among others, and they traveled instead of churches in various places. I want you to look at Acts chapter 13 and begin reading in verse 13, starting out from Paphos, Paul and that's Greece. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, this would eventually drive a wedge between Paul and Barnabas, because John Mark traveled with him at first, but it got difficult. He had to go home. John Mark wanted to rejoin them at a later time, and Paul said, no, he left us once, he'll, left us, he'll leave us again. John Mark is a mama's boy, let him stay at home with his family, and Barnabas said, you can't treat him like that, let's welcome him back. The two disagreed, two good godly men, both followers of Jesus Christ, an apostle of the first century, disagreed, and God did something beautiful in the disagreement. He took two missionaries and created four, because Barnabas then teamed up with John Mark, and Paul teamed up with Silas. Verse 14, from Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they entered the synagogue and sat down. This was Paul's MO. On Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, he and his followers would show up in the Jewish synagogue because Paul knew a couple of things. Number one, he knew that the Jews in the synagogue were very familiar with Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. I mean, for goodness sake, many of those Jews had probably traveled to Jerusalem and witnessed the execution of Jesus themselves. They had traveled for the week of Passover. Now, whether they be in Corinth, whether they be in Greece, whether they be in Italy, whether they be in modern-day Turkey or Galatia, wherever it was, they were familiar with Jesus Christ crucified. So Paul would sit down amongst them and wait for his chance to speak. Keep reading, verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And what follows in chapter 13 is one of several sermons that Luke recorded that Paul preached when he had the opportunity. And here's what Paul would do. Paul would take them back 
to the great exodus, he would remind the Jews of their heritage, and he would begin retelling the history of the Old Testament, and he would be weaving in Jesus Christ as Messiah until many who heard also believed. What's fascinating about this to me is that this went on for more than 20 years. For more than 20 years, the Apostle Paul wholeheartedly responded to the story of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm saying. It's one thing to respond in Acts 9 when you see the light, when you hear the voice, when you're face to face with the risen Christ, when you are personally commissioned by the resurrected Christ to go and start the church. That's one thing to respond then. It's another thing to keep responding. It's another thing to stay true. You see, church, this is where a lot of us miss it. There's a particularly flammable part of our lives where we connect to God. Maybe something went wrong and we turned to God because we had no other place to turn. But then things get routine. And then things kind of slow down a little bit. And then things change. And maybe there's a little more disappointment out there. And that's when we lose faith. That's when we back away. Not the Apostle Paul. 20 plus years after that incredible experience on the road to Damascus, Paul wrote the following to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. Think of me, think of us as servants of Christ. And since our first duty is to be faithful to the one we work for, it doesn't matter to me if I am judged by you. That's remarkable to me. For 20 plus years, Paul has cared about the right things. This is what motivated Paul. I consider myself a servant of Christ first. And since my first duty is to be faithful to the one I work for, I don't care if you judge me or if I'm, if, even if I'm judged by a court of law. In fact, I don't even judge myself. The Lord is my judge. God used Paul to carry the gospel to the Gentiles in a powerful way. A powerful way. He set up churches in Galatia, Ephesus, Corinth, and the list goes on and on. Fully half of your New Testament was written by this one man, the greatest of the apostles. When we finish the book of Acts, we get into Paul's first epistle, the epistle to the Roman church. There's Romans, there's 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. The bulk of your New Testament are letters to churches that, that Paul set up. He was the most prolific first century missionary the church has ever known. Now, one of the things that stands out clearly when you read through Paul's story in the book of Acts is that to believe was to respond. As the church continued to expand and develop, to believe in Jesus was to respond to Jesus. Whether we're talking about Saul or whether we're talking about the Philippian jailer, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Lydia, uh, other followers of Jesus, to believe in Jesus was then to respond to Jesus. You see, when someone said, I believe Christ is Lord, they then responded and lived as though Christ was Lord. Our response to Jesus Christ as Lord is called fruit in the Bible. It's what Jesus called fruit in John chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you'll abide in me, if you'll remain in me, if you'll respond to me, you will bear fruit. Later, Paul comes along and he calls it the fruits of the Spirit. Our response to Jesus, since we believe in Jesus, we respond and bear fruit. Now, Paul's final years are spent in prison. 
For three years, he's incarcerated in a home. He's under house arrest, guarded by a Roman sentry around the clock. He cannot leave the the, uh, premises. For the last two years, a total of five, he winds up in a dark, damp, filthy dungeon in Rome. He spent the last five years of his life literally incarcerated by Christ. Paul was beheaded eventually under Nero's reign. I want you to turn to the end of Paul's life. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'll wrap this up quickly. Paul introduces this final letter. This is the last letter, chronologically speaking, that Paul wrote. Paul, he introduces himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. If anybody knew the promise of life, the promise of transformation, the promise of death to life, it was Saul turned Paul. This was his motivation. To Timothy, verse 2, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy was one of Paul's young protégés. Timothy followed Paul for a time. Paul set up a church in Ephesus, and then he appointed Timothy to be the church's pastor. Turn one page over to chapter 2 and verse 1. You then, Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is a very important thing to the Apostle Paul. Does everybody understand that we wouldn't know anything about grace, God's unmerited favor, were it not for this man, Paul? Everything we know about grace comes from what Paul wrote in your New Testament. So Timothy, focus on grace. Be strong in the grace. Verse 2, and the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Verse 3, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul wanted Timothy to be willing to sacrifice for the story of Jesus, even suffer for the story of Jesus Christ. And Paul had seen his share of suffering. We talked about this. He was beaten and left for dead multiple times, all because he followed Christ. He was incarcerated multiple times, all because he followed Christ. He was shipwrecked. He was snake-bitten even, all because he followed Jesus Christ. Now he's writing his final letter. His life is almost over, and he's writing it in a damp, dark, filthy dungeon in Rome. Turn one last page to chapter 4 and verse 6. In chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul is literally days from his own execution. There's not much time remaining. Verse 6 reads, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. Paul had spent his life proclaiming the story of Jesus Christ. His life had become an offering, if you will, to God. You see, church, our time is our most precious gift. That time can be dedicated to our own interests or it can be poured into the interests of God's story. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight, Paul said. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. Look at verse 7 one last time. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I pray to God that I can say that one day. I pray to God that you can say that one day. I've fought a good fight. When I embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ, I responded. And everything from that moment on was about his story, not necessarily mine. You see, it's hardly debatable 
outside of Jesus Christ himself, no other person has been as impactful in the early New Testament church than the Apostle Paul. I mean, Peter and John and James, they were phenomenal. They made their mark, certainly, but none of them can compare to Paul. Paul's leadership development. Paul personally mentored people like Barnabas and Luke and John Mark and Silas and Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and the list goes on. You see, Paul allowed God to write his story, and that's what changed everything. This whole series, from the day we started until now, the challenge has been the same. The challenge has been for you to consider your story. There's not one person that I've asked to share their story that didn't tell me over the phone, Mike, I've never done this before. I'm going to have to put some thought into that. this. That's been the point. The point is to help you recognize that our story only becomes significant, only becomes eternal when it becomes eternally linked to God's story. You see, one day we're all going to stand before Jesus Christ, every one of us. And according to Paul... He's the one that wrote, on that day, the only thing that's going to matter is what we did for Jesus. Wherever you are on your journey, whatever you're facing, whatever you've done, God is attempting to write your story. You see, and when you embrace his mission in your home, he's writing your story. When, when you embrace his character in the workplace, he is writing your story. When you accept that he can use you for his glory and your own good, he's writing your story. Even when you're suffering and you're struggling and it's dark and you're disappointed and you've experienced loss, when you rely on him, when you hold fast to what you know about the risen Christ, he's writing your story. I leave you where we started. You will never know what God can do with your story until you allow him to write it. Let's pray. Father in God, I am grateful for an example like Saul. What a transformation. It simply demonstrates that when we decide to follow you, the sky's the limit. You can do with us what you will. Now, Father, for most, most of us, I'm sure they feel the same way that I feel. Well, I'll never be an Apostle Paul. I'll never do anything like that. But But Father, at the same time, I pray we take refuge and take heart in the reality that what we share and have in common with the apostle is your willingness to intervene and write our story for us. So Father, use us. Help us respond. And I pray it because of Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.